I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ramdas's Love Serve Remember Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma Hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ramdas, Krishnadas, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more. The Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash inner academy. Teaching meditation can be a deeply rewarding experience. Help others improve their mental and emotional well-being reduce stress, improve focus, increase self-awareness and self-regulation, all while deepening your own practice and understanding. Join acclaimed author, Buddhist teacher, and Emmy Award-winning musician David Nickturn on Tuesday, May 28th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time for a free online discussion on teaching meditation in Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash be here now for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn on May 28th. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to the Metta Hour Podcast with Sharon Salzberg, where Buddhist wisdom meets everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Be Here Now Network. If you're interested in supporting this podcast, visit www.beherenownetwork.com slash Sharon. Enjoy listening. I'm Sharon Salzberg, and I'm speaking today with Stephen Hayes, Ph.D. Steve is a professor of psychology at the University of Nevada. He's trying to teach me how to pronounce it. Reno. He's the author of over 40 books and hundreds of scientific articles and has served as president of the Association for Behavioral and Cognitive Therapy and the Association for Contextual Behavioral Science. Steve initiated the development of acceptance and commitment therapy and of relational frame theory. And his latest book, A Liberated Mind, was released in the summer of 2019 from Avery Books. Welcome to the Meta Hour, Steve. 
I'm glad to be here with you, Sharon. I'm really uh, grateful for the opportunity to talk to you and to your listeners. Thank you so much. Um, there's so many questions um, I want to ask. Like, uh, First of all, what is relational th- frame theory? It's a theory of language and cognition, and not just a kind of an abstract theory, but an active research program with several hundred studies. And when I first developed uh, acceptance and therapy, or ACT, it seemed to me if we're going to sort of dive into human experience in that way, we needed a better foundation in terms of why the human mind sort of does what it does. And so um, the place where it really lands outside of ACT isn't taking children from not being able to speak to being able to speak or raising IQ levels in kids or establishing a sense of self if kids don't have that. Uh, you know, that kind of sense of self that allows empathy and compassion. And so it's a, it's sort of the foundation underneath uh, ACT. Pretty geeky, a little hard to explain and understand, but really important to a lot of uh, children and to others who can, uh, where we can apply that knowledge. Uh, well, maybe you could then go on to describe acceptance and commitment therapy, which is uh, certainly something I've been hearing about for many years, but I think it would be fascinating to take a deeper look at. Sure. You know, the elevator speech version of uh, yeah. it's a combination of acceptance and mindfulness processes, commitment and behavior change processes for the purpose of producing psychological flexibility. And essentially what we did, you know, I had a, you know, a, a transformational experience really long ago, almost 40 years ago, and then tried to build that out inside my tradition, which is behavior therapy and cognitive behavior therapy, and to try to figure out what are the underlying processes. I especially come out of actually the behavioral wing. I'm a sort of a neo-Skinnerian. Usually mm-hmm. don't say that aloud and polite. That's <laughs> It's a, a very stigmatized perspective. Something to do with a box, right? <laughs> yes, it's very much misunderstood. I got to have to defend Skinner boxes. Oh no! <laughs> but you know, but part of that tradition was to really dig down to these high precision, high scope principles. So we spent about fifteen, sixteen years. You know, where you really wouldn't know that ACT existed uh, after doing a couple of three randomized trials. You do have to remember this is so early that the idea of something like what John Kabat-Zinn did or mm-hmm. mindfulness-based cognitive therapy was completely out of the possibility. So mm-hmm. for me to be moving in the direction of wisdom traditions and so forth, uh, I felt as though we needed to have a solid foundation underneath us. So what's important about ACT, I think, is maybe a little different, is that we've spent the time to... Uh, the arrogant way to say it is to crack the code. You know, the, we, I think we know the 20% that does the 80%. I think we actually know where the pivot point is in human language, you know, mm-hmm. the, the without which you don't get it, you know, the sine qua non of human language. And most of that's below, it's in the basement, but then building on top of that, we've been able to assemble these six processes we call psychological flexibility which do a better job of predicting pathology if you mess it up or prosperity if you get it right in more areas of living than any other set of processes known in psychological science, in my opinion. And I, I think that's really an empirical fact. I think it just does that because we're, we're now sitting on top of like 3,000 studies and mm. 
you know, studies with 10,000 people followed for a decade, things like that. I mean, these ginormous, you know, uh, studies with, you know, you know, samples that are actually modeling the whole population and all those niceties from science. So we come to the table, as I say, you you walk into a clearing and you, and you find a whole bunch of people there with different paths bringing you to, to the clearing that maybe there's something important in the clearing. And what's in the clearing that we're in are, are, are monks and wisdom traditions and c- deeper clinical traditions and uh, but we came by a different path. You know, we're, we've walked into this space from this uh, geeky Western science path. And uh, to me, the path doesn't ma- matter as much as the clearing. Mm-hmm. But, mm-hmm. but the journey that you took to get there, uh, you sometimes bring things to it that then other people can use. And what we bring is that uh, process orientation and then being able to link some very simple methods to it that don't initially look like exactly what you'd think of in contemplative practice, but turns out move the same processes. So that that's uh, part of the reason I'm so excited to talk to you, because frankly, uh, sometimes our work is included when you use a word like mindfulness, and sometimes mm-hmm. it's ex- excluded. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and uh, I appreciate the opportunity to be able to at least have that conversation so that people can make their judgment of whether that should be included or not. That's great. Well, actually, I was thinking, um, if I understand it correctly, these two components of acceptance and commitment, there's the acceptance of what the current feeling is or what you're going through, uh, in the sense of acknowledging it, not fighting it, not trying to deny it, not adding shame or whatever. And then the commitment part is understanding, well, were I to follow that impulse... Um, I'd be in trouble, you know, that that hurts and that I have choice. I can, I can, I can mold my life in a different way. Is that correct? I agree with all that. There's some uh, nuances and some additional kind of color and texture we can add to it. But, uh, you know, I think the, you know, contemplative practice or ancient wisdom traditions before Western science gets in there and does what it knows how to do. And you can do a Western science of it. And what I always say is, you know, uh, it's not like we're in a new space here. It's just mm-hmm, a, new, mm-hmm. a, a new way in. But uh, if you have the whole set, what a good teacher could do, let's put it this way, what a good teacher could do uh, using contemplative methods would, uh, if it succeeds, and it, you know, it doesn't always, I mean, the methods don't do the work, the a person, you you know, following a practice is still has to do the work and find the way. You know, mm-hmm. the, it's it's not built in just in some sort of formal, uh, you know, aping of a of, of an action. Um, but a good teacher would establish everything that is inside psychological flexibility as a concept. But when we've westernized it and we've put it into uh, you know, companies and things like that. There's some pieces, you know, like right action, you know, where are values and, you know, where is the part? The commitment part isn't just acknowledging what didn't work. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's also that action of choice about what are the qualities of being and doing that you want to put into your action. Mm-hmm. And, and then the how to, how do you do that? And we've learned a lot about how to how behavior change works. I mean, then the, you know, behavioral science has something important to contribute there that 
or methods, you know, about how you set goals, for example, how do you build habits and things of that kind that are, uh, that weren't necessarily known to the mystics who always started these kinds mm-hmm. of things. You know, people have had a spiritual experience and they see through the kind of, uh, pseudo iron bars of human language that turn out to be printed on rice paper. You know, there's something mm-hmm. in the human mind that, that, that chains us in and, Contemplative practice sort of, you know, puts a little nice little slit in that uh, rice paper. You can walk out, but uh, Western science, I think, has a role, too, about how to then create habits of uh, being and doing that uh, fit with your values and that are open to your own experience and that is situated mindfully, consciously in the present moment. One of the uh, things I found fascinating about the inclusion of the commitment part is that in the kind of current popularization of mindfulness, what is really talked about the most is the acceptance part. And that's one of the complaints that people coming from a more classical tradition have, you know, that um, there's a quality of discernment in, in the original meaning of mindfulness where you're not just, I mean, it's not nothing to accept, you know, obviously, sure. and and to have a a more loving and open-hearted acknowledgement of, yes, this is my experience right now, but embedded within the understanding of mindfulness originally, at least as I was taught, um, was this sense of discernment, you know, like, uh, this is worth bolstering, this is worth letting go of, all in the, you know, out of compassion for oneself, out of uh, wish to be happy, which is rightful, you know, and important, and uh, not to create suffering for ourselves or for others. And so that's a big complaint, you know, that that part is is being left out. So I was very intrigued that it's right there, you know, in yeah. in your uh, framing. Yeah, it is. It's part of a deep part of ACT. And I have the same complaint and the same worry because I think what happened is that in order to put this into the healthcare system, Mm-hmm. And, and then there's another part which worries me even a little more, which is in order to put it into Western culture kind of as it is. Mm-hmm. Some things were minimized and even eliminated. And, and, and I get the heart behind that. You know, you want to make things accessible. You want to be able to go to where the need is and so forth. And nobody gave you perhaps the sanction uh, or, the, you know, gave you the permission for you to talk about values, for example, or uh, you commit, mm-hmm. uh, a commitment to a path and so forth. You would in a, in a spiritual religious uh, tradition, mm-hmm. but not in a healthcare tradition. But then you end up with things that are almost like mindfulness. You know, you, you know I actually literally saw a mindfulness burger at a, at a small <laughs> burger shop. And it isn't just the popularization. It's things like, uh, you take care of the kids. I got to go meditate. Mm-hmm. And go, well, what? What? Really? Uh, you know, there are people who are jonesing for the mindfulness retreat. I mean, they're, they're kind of like, do you know what I mean? I mean, this mm-hmm. is like the, the self-soothing addiction or something. It's, and it's passed in the popular media as a form of relaxation and of, you know, you can go to the spa and you can also do your mindfulness. I mean, what? Mm-hmm. Really? I asked a, a, a major 
a leader of the mindfulness wing, I won't mention his name, but somebody anyone would know and associate with mindfulness work, I had two questions for him just to see. And I said, are you really more interested in the process or are you more interested in the procedure? And he said, the process. I said, okay, and are you really interested in Joe Sixpack or only the educated elite or young people or the really interested who are likely to do a 10-day silent retreat? And he said, I'm interested in Joe Sixpack. I said, okay, I'm with you. This is what we're trying. We're trying to bring base into the human heart and head and have it show up in human hands Mm -hmm. of being able to do things in the world, to soften, to to put love into the world, to put contribution in the world and creativity and compassion and whatever you choose that comes from your free choice of the the kind of uh, life you want to live. And uh, I think we it really, we dare not allow, it's just too important to allow this to turn into a Western culture cartoon. Mm-hmm. We know how to we know how to screw things up. Mm-hmm. We do. We will turn it into some commercial entity that people are making money off of, and we're going to find ways. I think you can look around and you see it uh, to popularize in ways that actually loses some of what the work is really about. So I want, I want to go back to something that you, you talked about um, in terms of the the science of habit formation and so on. And yeah. So I was thinking about how many people say, well, you know, I did this retreat and I got really interested in, and uh, committed to having a daily practice and it was too hard when I got right. back home. And in many ways, you know, daily practice is a cornerstone of making it real in the rest of our lives. Not for everybody, perhaps, but it seems like one of the easiest ways to remember when you're at work, when you're in a meeting, when your kid is screaming, you know, or whatever, um, is to have that kind of just almost like strength training every day. Sure. Of, you know, whatever, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes. And and that's very hard for people. And so uh, I'm wondering about, habit formation and that science and if that um, couldn't be incorporated into one's understanding of like what might help me actually have a daily practice. Absolutely, you can do that. And and actually there there are studies that have tried to do that and I think with some success and that, you know, you have to be impressed by what the research shows in the sense of how few uh, minutes are even needed to have a positive benefit. Mm-hmm. Yes, mm-hmm. You know, uh, longer is usually better, et cetera. But, you know, just a little does a lot. And and then the other thing I'd want to add, and this is where sometimes the mindfulness wing wants to part company with, with the ACT wing, is that we've spent decades now, we're coming up on 40 years of development of this, uh, in developing methods that sometimes are extremely short. I mean, 30 seconds long. Mm -hmm. We have methods that take 30 seconds to do. And that you could, methods that you could do anywhere, that you can do in the car, that you can do while you're working, etc. That we know, because we've done the component work and the process work, and we have those process measures, bump uh, our psychology in the right direction of being more open, more aware, and more actively engaged. And so, 
the mediators, the functionally important processes of change that are there in the scientific study of uh, contemplative practice, overlap with the mediators, the, the same processes uh, with uh, ACT and its practices. And of the 330 randomized trials that we've done in every area of living that you can imagine, from sports to mental health, um, about half of those, we've done studies of what are the processes of, of change, and they're sitting on top of about 100 studies of the components. So we can say to the mindfulness community, could we consider also methods that don't look like contemplative practice but move the processes that contemplative practice moves and supplement what we're trying to do as a cultural movement that's so needed in the modern world. Mm-hmm. We need modern minds for the modern world because we're facing challenges that are never been faced before. And some of the things that are in the contemplative traditions we know are essential to being able to face those challenges in a healthy way for yourself and for those that you love. So I want to turn loose the creativity of the clinicians and the teachers and the, the, the coaches and the OTs and PTs and psychiatrists and anybody, you know, the, the business owners that, who are trying to put these processes in the world. Can I give you just one example? Yeah, I would love an example. Okay, so this is a, a, a method that is 100 years old. It was originally uh, uh, developed by Titchener, uh, the father of American psychology. And he had a theory of cognition called a contextual theory, which a lot of Titchener I didn't like, but that little part I did. And he would do public demonstrations. And you'll, you'll recognize right away because it's well-known enough. But what he would do is he would ask people to take a word, and he would just use any word, you know, like the word milk, let's say, and say it out loud fast. Uh, he hadn't done the research to know how long and how fast we have. And so I can tell you, you need to do it at least 30 seconds and at least as fast as once per second. And and just take that word, milk, and say it out loud of that fast for 30 seconds. Watch what happens. Well, what happens is that it loses its meaning. And it turns into a sound. You begin to lose the beginning and end of the word. You begin to notice that it takes effort to speak. and Your muscles get tired saying the same word. Okay, so we were the first ones ever, pretty long ago, this was early in the act work, to take that and and have people take something that they've struggled with, that they've tried to change and distill it down to a single word. So a word like stupid, unlovable, mean, perverted, you know, whatever it is that tortures you, that keeps you up at two in the morning, Mm. and distill it down to that word, and say it out loud fast for 30 seconds. Well, what happens is that first the distress comes down fast. 15 seconds in, you're much less distressed. You're able to sort of look at that thought without being entangled by it. Uh, 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 and that part includes a loss of believability, which kicks in about five or 10 seconds later. By the end of the 30 seconds, both distress and believability have gone way down and you now are looking at the thought, not from the thought. Mm -hmm. Well, does that sound familiar? I mean, when 
when you're engaged in contemplative practice, thoughts are constantly coming up, which are kind of tempting you. Yoo-hoo, take me seriously. Mm-hmm. And, you know, enter into language as it's normally done, which is take it literally, what we call fusion, uh, fuse with it. And a, a meditator will recognize that even if the thought is something like, boy, I'm doing a good job meditating today, you leave your hands off that. You allow it to float by, to come and go. You come back to the practice, depending on the tradition, what mm-hmm. you may do, following the breath or focusing or whatever you're doing. Well, it turns out that you can take people on the factory floor who might have a, you know, a thought like, uh, you know, unlovable or mean or whatever. And in 30 seconds, pop the illusion of language that dictator's voice within that captures us, that chains us down, and it even whispers that it's who we are. Uh, and, and you get that little space opens up between this more witnessing, observing, conscious part of you and the thought that you're having. It's one of about 200, 300 methods. We, when I've written popular books, I do it again in The Liberated Mind. My first popular book was Get Out of Your Mind, End Your Life. I did it there, too. And, uh, you know, I get things from people. I taught people in the book how to do it. And so I get things from people around the world who are, you know, wearing their T-shirts, you know, like, I'm unlovable, sue me. Um, (laughs) They're just like dancing with what they used to torture and I also get, boy, I hope this doesn't sound offensive. I'm not trying to be prideful in it, but I literally do. It's the truth. I get emails from people who say, you know, I've meditated for 20 years. And that piece, I didn't realize really what I was doing. Mm-hmm. And now I see, see it. And it's a lot easier for me to do it now. I mean, to do it in the sense of have that doing have that effect. And to me, that's like cool, you know, that Western science could do things like that Mm -hmm. and add to the conversation. We're in a cultural conversation right now. Mm -hmm. And I don't don't think we should be restricted just by people who are in our our history as if we're not part of it. it. You know, it isn't just the spiritual leaders who are dead and gone for centuries who should be speaking to us about how to show up whole and free. And the, so the therapists have a role. I think they've been mismanaged it hor- horribly, but, but the mm-hmm. coaches and the, and, and the teachers and just normal people have a role. And let's put all hands on deck. And uh, so you'll see when you get into the act work is there's this rich soup of methods. A lot of them I know, some of the early ones, a client came up with that. Mm-hmm. That that metaphor, that exercise, that practice. A client told me, and they stumbled on it. Just normal people, in walking out of suffering, and so that's kind of cool. That maybe all of us can be involved in creating a more uh, open, mindful, and accepting world that empowers people to step forward in the direction that really brings meaning and purpose into their lives and the lives of those they love. That'd be awesome. Well, I mean, I think it's inevitably, you know, like any one human being uh, who has an interest in consciousness changing is going to be their own laboratory in a way, and they're going to be 
picking yeah. up from different sources. And, you know, so any one person is kind of creating a path. Exactly. And then if we can put Western science on that, not just in terms of validating, oh, yeah, that's helpful. But why is it helpful? And if you, that's a harder journey. And frankly, there's a lot of uh, the psychological sciences, the behavioral sciences that haven't really been on that journey as much as we've biomedicalized human suffering. We just got into this kind of protocol mindset, you know, did it go away yet? And like, ah, and, but if we can do that, then maybe over time we can kind of hack the code. Mm -hmm. Why is it so hard to be human? What the heck is going on? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And what can we do about it? And this is a, a question that every single human life instantiates. Every single human being is asking that question of themselves. Or as they watch their family and people they love, you know, stumble into addiction or, or, or you know, mindlessness or etc. And you know, so one of the things that people find inside the act work that's a little different is that we're constantly adding methods, but we keep coming back to trying to figure out what is the underlying process? Why does this work? And that's a question that not all of Western science does. It is what uh, you know we have done out of the wing that we've, we've come out of, and that adds something new. It actually simplifies over time. And so that it's kind of a thing where it seems to me we need to create a context in which all of these different ideas that people have when they've been through uh, uh, contemplative practice and they see ways that they can move forward. Because every human life is facing this question of why is it so hard to be human? You look around you, if, if it doesn't apply to you, it applies to the person next to you, it applies to your kid, your, your spouse family. And what can we do that will be of help? And as you answer that question inside yourself, perhaps even through the contemplative practice work that you're doing and how you get there and how you do it, you'll find other things that you're adding to it. And so if we can take those things and, yeah, we want to vet them with Western science, even with the question of, well, does that new method work? Is it of help to people? But the other thing we can ask is, and why does that work? And what you find is that as you ask that question, we get clusters, we get combinations of methods that keep coming back to a small set of common core processes. And when you've done that, you begin to sort of hack the code. Why is it hard to be human? What are we going to do about it? And it's not something any one person can do. A whole community needs to do it. In fact, the whole culture needs to take this question seriously. And if you look at the modern world and the direction we're going, I think, uh, you know, a lot of us are thinking, you know, really something is wrong. It, you know, why is it so hard to be human, even in our cultural manifestations, when you see things like the what we're doing with the, the immigrant crisis or how we handle poverty or what about the movement of peoples or what about climate change and what are we going to do about it? And so I think we come to the table, the ACT community comes to the table with something pretty unique, pretty different. Yes, outcome data, but a lot of new procedures. Yeah, that's important. But then this distilling down into a 
a small set of processes that are really critical that have been sitting there. If I were to walk through it and say what they are, you'd say, oh, yes, of course, that are right inside our contemplative practice traditions, but now can be put into the modern world in new ways. You begin your book with some really amazing statistics that mental health issues are now cited as the number one health disease from the World Health Organization as of 2017. And I don't know the exact science um, or the research, but I keep hearing about an epidemic of loneliness that is plaguing people and uh, really causing so much pain. And what do you think, has something changed in the past decades that... Well, it clearly has. And if you look at young people... You know, over the last 20 to 30 years, they've moved more than a standard deviation on anxiety, mm-hmm. stress, mm-hmm. depression. And you know it's not, oh, they're just getting used to filling out the forms and self-report. Mm-hmm. No, no, because it shows up in things like suicide rates. Mm-hmm. So this is something that's real. There's been a change that it's harder to be human now than it used to be. And I I think the big part is, is we're, it's, it's a two-part process that, includes some little elements. Even with non-humans, it would be bad to put pain and comparison into their lives. Pain, it would be obvious, but you can see it also a comparison. I've ever seen those YouTube videos of the monkeys getting the cucumbers while the monkey next door gets the grapes and how mad they get when they see that they're not mm-hmm. doing as well for their work. as the No, monkey. I haven't seen that. Oh, it's wonderful. Google it. Uh, and uh, just putting cucumbers and grapes and monkeys, you'll find the tape. And it's it's sweet and sad, but it's right there in our human experience, too. But then we added this new kid on the block of language and cognition, just a couple hundred thousand to 2.8 million years old. We know it's in that range because the language-trained chimps don't do what your 12-month-old baby do does. That's that relational frame theory part. I can go into it if you like, but we add this judgment piece. So you've got this toxic triad of pain, comparison, and judgment. And where is it? It's in your pocket right now in that computer you call your phone. You can see anything horrifying that happened in the world over the last hour. You might even see it live now that people are streaming. You know, people go in with their guns and stream Mm -hmm. live. You know, this is something that, I mean, I'm old enough to remember if you put a picture of a dead soldier in the New York Times during the Vietnam War, they freaked out. Mm -hmm. You're showing a dead soldier. Man, think of what our young people should see nowadays. And then, so, so we've got this toxic triad, pain, comparison, and judgment. And then we've added in this commercial interest linked up to this biomedicalization of human suffering where you we actively encourage avoidance, pretense. You know, I have this or I have that. Yeah, but if you take the right pill or if you buy the right car or if you have enough money or if you dance the right dance or wear the right clothes, you're like, ah. Mm-hmm. And, and so what's being offered to young people is pain without purpose, the ability to see that people are always doing better than you and just look at their Instagram accounts. And then here you're the, the, the one who's, yeah, you're up on social media, but that you feel so alone because you don't see in people's outsides, what you feel on your insides. And the solution that people are adding, they're suggesting, are these kind of sugar soup solutions of avoidance and pretense. And it empties out 
human lives and the, you know, the suicide rates are the metric of it. So something is wrong. The modern, I, I use that phrase, modern minds for the modern world. We need to bring something new into the culture or these statistics are just going to keep getting worse. Mm. And how do we reach normal folks? We may not be able to reach it with uh, things that they cast as religion, for example. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So one of the things that is cool about the ACT work is we've been able to put ACT methods in things like uh, diversity training, stress management. Of course, John Kabat-Zinn did that. It's brilliant. Mm -hmm. uh, we can uh, put it into worker effectiveness training, or we can put it into uh, uh, you know programs for the displaced or for uh, 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 for refugees or uh, the World Health Organization has an ACT program, uh, brilliant. Uh, no, it's just audio tapes and cartoon books mm. that are has been tested now in a, in a wonderful randomized trial that appears to be on press at Lancet with South Sudanese, Sudanese refugees in Uganda, where we can significantly help with the distress of displaced people. So I'm constantly interested in what, where do people want behavioral health knowledge? Uh, you know, there's ACT coaches who help people win Olympic gold medals. Mm. When I when I went to China recently, and I was the mental health people who were interested, but then I was, next thing you know, I'm talking to the diabetes uh, center and the nephrologist there because there's really nice data on that. And then I'm talking to the... Uh, to the Olympic sport, sports coaches because they have a whole act wing in China with their athletes. So wouldn't that be cool if we could dig down into what's inside our mindfulness traditions that's really essential and needed and then package it in so many different ways that you cannot avoid it, you know. Now, we've done that to a degree with like mindfulness in the schools, for example. Mm -hmm. But we're seeing pushback. Yeah. You just go to, man, you can do it in New York. You go to the South, wow. If you use the B word, I mean, I used to live in North Carolina. I would teach my students in the early days of ACT that started there, do not use the B word. Mm -hmm. Because ACT didn't really come from Buddhism. It came from Western science. But I was aware of it. I'm an old hippie, and I read <laughs> lots of Suzuki. And I, you know, but, you know, also the Sufis and so forth. It wasn't just Buddhism. And I lived on a religious commune linked to the Hindu traditions. But, and, I, and I was trained by Jesuits. So, you know, you get exposed to a lot of mm -hmm. things in the, in the different traditions. But maybe, maybe we need to put it into the modern world in things that might be from your sports coach or from your geography teacher or from, you know, that's possible. We could do that uh, if we understand the processes that are involved. I'm curious if you've done work, say, with um, refugees and, and displaced people. Do you, do you see programs that are working with um, caregivers, for better word, you know, for lack of a better word, like, uh, yeah. humanitarian aid workers, people who are serving in, in those incredibly difficult situations? We have about 15 randomized trials in the ACT work about dealing with caregivers and, and uh, providers. 
uh, in all of the different kind of professions, but not just that, just people who are in those roles. I mean, with uh, emergency responders and the police and with mm-hmm. uh, the therapists and the uh, doctors and nurses and the, you know, pe- people uh, working in emergency rooms, the, the people working in, with charities. You know, there's these phrases like compassion fatigue and so forth or burnout that people use when you're talking about people who are asked to do such hard things. And very often people are not given any training to be in this role. They're simply told to, in in the sense of dealing with their own mental health, police are not Mm -hmm. necessarily trained or emergency responders are not necessarily trained. Or here's another one. I dedicated a liberated mind, this new book to John cloud, he was a reporter for Time Magazine, and he uh, wrote the first story about ACT when I wrote Get Out of Your Mind Into Your Life. It ended up in a five-page spread in Time Magazine on ACT in 2006. It was my 15 minutes of fame moment. <laughs> and he did a brilliant job, and he and I were going to write A Liberated Mind together. I followed his career, and he left Time Magazine, but... He died early, and part of the reason he died early is what he was asked to do as a reporter. He went to the doors of parents at Sandy Hook and knocked on the door 24 hours after their children had been killed. That's what we ask of reporters. And what do we put into their hearts and minds to be able to handle that? Mm -hmm. We put the wisdom of old reporters who told them to drink a lot. Mm-hmm. I mean, literally, we put no training into people to do these hard jobs. And there's another one that's just screaming for do something. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. Don't add, you know, and so, yeah, John died of his addiction, and he's not an author on this book. And I dedicated the book to him, and I wrote a sentence, uh, something like... Uh, I'm sorry, it's hard to talk about this. Yeah, Some, something like, uh, you know, we ask reporters to do such hard things um, because he suffered with that. And uh, I know one reason he wrote that story about ACT. It's because he saw something that lifted him up a little bit mm-hmm. after the fact with uh, the trauma, really, that his career had produced. But it doesn't just him. It's the care workers dealing with the refugees. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Not, nowadays, Sharon, it's if you open the newspaper or or look on your phone. You know, the whole world was invited into trauma, mm-hmm. and we know we know what predicts trauma because we went in and we had actually done some of the research in New York. We had measures of psychological flexibility and inflexibility. And we went in and did, took measures of how horrifying was it to be a New Yorker in those days after September 11th. And what predicted trauma? It was not how painful, how anxious, how horrifying it was. It was how str- hard people worked not to feel mm. that pain and horror. You suppress, it comes back, it gets you. And an entire generation went through a traumatic experience. So 
I think that's part of what we see in the hardening of hearts that's in the modern world, you know, with people standing in front of school buses with four and five year old immigrant children, you know, screaming, get out or go mm-hmm. home. You know, this is not the best of humanity. What you're seeing there is not terrible people screaming those words. You're seeing people face the psychological challenges that are not given the tools they need to step into that moment in a compassionate way. And uh, the caregivers are suffering as a result, but not just them, all of us are. Thank you so much for that. Uh, Really, maybe you can describe psychological flexibility uh, a little bit, you know, because I think it's important for people to understand that as we open to more and more um, experiences that are are painful, it's not under-resourced, you know, that we open in a certain way. Well, think of psychological flexibility as like a box, and a box has six sides. If you took out any one side, you'd weaken the box. If you took out two, you'd weaken it dramatically. And these six skills fit together. We know that empirically. When we try to measure them, they sometimes even collapse back into the one. You can measure each six, but uh, they're really kind of three pillars and six sides, and they all go together. They're kind of six that are three that are one. Um so the, if I go to the three, and then I'll give you the six, the three are open, meaning cognitively and emotionally open, aware, meaning in the present moment as a conscious human being, you know, from this witnessing, observing, conscious, ineffable, I hear nowness of awareness point of view, and actively engaged in living a life worth living, meaning that you've connected with your values and your building habits around them. So I've started to get into the points in those three, the open part. There are skills that you need to be able to back up from the languaging minds that we have from symbolic learning. It has special challenges that it presents to us and opportunities. It's the core of all of human creation, problem solving, etc. But if you don't know how to back out, you just enter into the verbal world, and we're so verbal. We're feeding it so much. There's so many words we're exposed to. Just to do a nature walk is like a relief, but even then, your mind will be chattering. <laughs> uh, and so the on the open part, the the cognitive entanglement, we put instead cognitive diffusion, not diffusion, diffusion, it's neologism, but learning to look at your thoughts, not just from your thoughts. In the emotion side, we go from experiential avoidance, which has two faces. One is, I don't want the bad stuff. And then the other face is, I only want the good stuff. So whether it's clinging and attachment or it's actively avoiding, what we put instead is what we call acceptance. But acceptance doesn't mean tolerance or resignation. It means the original Latin root, that septeri, part of the word. Septeri meant to receive as if to receive a gift. And we still have it in English when we give something precious to somebody that we love and we say, here, will you accept this? That's what life is doing when it gives you memories and emotions and felt sense. and bother. Because it's giving you a gift of your history, which is a gift of wisdom. 
And so, yeah, I teared up thinking about the suffering mm-hmm. of my friend, mm-hmm. my friend John Cloud. But it gives me uh, meaning and purpose. Mm-hmm. There's a reason to write this book. There's a reason to do those workshops. There's a reason to do those podcasts. Because who knows? You know, John is not here, but who knows who are the other John Clouds? Mm-hmm. You with me on that? So, on. Um, So the opening processes are cognitively flexible or open, emotionally flexible or open. All of it, all thoughts, all feelings, all memories, all bodily sensations have a place. No more, you know, Mr. Clean's magic eraser or little, you know, Xing out with the Sharpie, the stuff you don't want. That's not how it comes. Love and loss comes as one thing. When we come into the center part of aware, yeah, we need our skills of being able to come into the present moment and let go of the mind's invitation to ruminate or worry, to go to the past or the future, to become oriented to the present. No, we're going to become oriented to the present by stepping into the present. But we also need from this witnessing, observing, no thing, everything, self. You know, the, the evaluated word, the self or the engrandized self is something that the contemplative practice traditions avoid, and they should. But there's another sense of self, which is the witnessing or observing self. Big mind, one mind, no mind. You. Every tradition has a way of talking about it, because it's not. But it's not an it, mm-hmm. because because it's ineffable. It has no edges. It's just pure awareness. It has no edges of which you can become aware almost by definition. And so, we have methods. And, and and they're driven by relational frame theory because we can take children who don't have that sense of self and we know how to train them in the verbal processes that create it. If you push me a little bit, I'll even tell you what they are. Mm-hmm. So They're a little geeky. But, okay, so that combination of conscious, meaning this witnessing part, in the present moment. Now we're uh, increased awareness and then finally is engagement. And there we have our processes of how to choose meaning, the qualities of being, doing, the things that are intrinsic to your action, not your goals. Goals are fine, but what are the things that you want to stand for, that you want to instantiate, that you want to manifest that are intrinsic to your actions? Do that by choice and then use that good old-fashioned behavioral science wisdom of how to create habits on purpose that are uh, through repetition and larger patterns that allow you to be mindful even when you're not watching, you know, that allow mindlessness to work for you, you know, that the habits just will carry you into values-based action even when you're not watching. Mm. So those are the six organized as the three, I'd say it's open, aware, and actively engaged. if I were to say it in a sentence, it would mean to step back from your mind and allow it to be there as it is, not as what it says it is, and to step into your history and the present moment and what it affords consciously, and then focus on what you want to bring into the world with your next moment of action and build habits around doing that. You do that, really? your life is going <laughs> to step up. You don't do any of those things, your life's going to be hindered. And they're all in our contemplative traditions, fully built out. 
they're not necessarily in our contemplative traditions the way we've westernized it. Mm-hmm. We've sometimes left values on the table. We've habit change on the table. That's not wise. We shouldn't. I understand why, but but time's up. We've got to figure out a way to get that in there because uh, it's where the rubber really meets the road. Thank you so much. I'm wondering if, to close our conversation, you could lead us in a short practice of some kind. Sure. I'd like to do something that sort of has the whole act model in it. Mm -hmm. But what I need from listeners is I need something that they're struggling with or trying to change, something that's difficult for them. Uh, that has a history to it that projects into the present uh, a day. So I need an issue that they want to work on. And uh, that's all that's needed. Uh, but when I say the issue, I'm referring to whatever the person who's listening now just picked, uh, uh, picked an area of struggle or uh, uh, unhappiness or difficulty that includes some psychological aspect, not just external. And so what I'd ask the folks listening is to just find a place where you can be safe for a few moments to be able to be where you are and to close your eyes. And then we'll start out in the world of sensation. And I want you just to notice what's there in your body. Let's say what's there in your body with how you touch the environment around you. If you're standing, just your feet. If you're sitting, your rear end and back in the chair, wherever you are, notice how you're touching physically the environment that you're in. And almost from the inside out, draw like a little pattern of touch. Almost like if you had wet paint on and you moved, you'd see where you touched. If you can draw from the inside out the shape that your body makes on the environment that you're in and vice versa. And then as you notice those things, just notice that you're noticing those things. There's a part of you that's listening to me now and that is directing your attention towards your feet or your buttocks or your back or wherever you're touching your environment. Your buttocks is not noticing itself. Your feet is not noticing yourself. This is an aspect of your whole person that There's a part of you that's noticing. And from that perspective, I want you to go to pick, to touch for a moment that issue you decided to work on. And take just a little moment to kind of touch that. We actually like metaphorically sort of reach inside and put it out here. If you're sitting in your lap, if you're standing at your feet, so that you can have that collection of memories and bodily sensations and emotions and thoughts, predispositions and past actions. This issue, the external challenges you face, this issue is now there and you're looking at it. And the question that I want to have for you is, what are you going to do that is healthy, whole and free with that? And don't answer that question. Allow that question to sort of be suspended for what I'm going to ask you to do, which is to ask your heart for a guide in the form of an actual person that you know, that you've interacted with, who somehow it speaks to you that this person might be a good guide to help you with what you might do that is healthy 
and whole and free. It was life expanding with regard to this issue that you picked. And not in a mindy way, don't do it formulaically, just allow your heart to speak with you. Pick a guide. Somebody who you actually know could be a family member, a coach, a therapist, a teacher, a spiritual leader, anyone. And when you land on someone, I'd like you to imagine that this person is here now with you and who's, what's with you is just their face. And to bring that face in front of you just about 18 inches from your face and take a little moment to notice that human face. Your guide's eyes are open looking at you. But take a notice of the person's skin and their hair and their expression and their hard-earned wrinkles and those eyes. And allow yourself just to react to that face. What do you see in that face? If you were to allow yourself to first connect with your experience and then put a couple words to it. Are you looking at a loving face? A kind face? What kind of a face are you looking at there? And now bring your attention to those eyes and allow your eyes to see the eyes that are seeing you, seeing them. And in imagination, we're connected here in consciousness. You're being seen by this guide that you pick. And as you do that, magically, go behind the eyes of the guide you pick so that now what you're seeing in imagination is your face, your expression, your skin, your wrinkles, your eyes. And just gently ask the question, what does your guide see in you and your face? And if that guide had been listening to me talking, what words might come to mind? And allow yourself to be seen as you're seen by others. As you're seen even by the wise people you pick to guide you. And then we'll come back behind your eyes now and take just a moment to look at this guide that you've picked. And then I want you to sort of mentally remind the guide, this guide has been in you, so it already knows the answer of what's there on your lap or at your feet of the issue that you picked. And the question that you had of what am I going to do about this? And taking a moment just to connect with those eyes. Ask your guide for some words. What am I going to do about this? And if a guide just had a few words, no more than a sentence, what might the guide say? And allow those words to be spoken and to be heard by you. And then having heard those words, bring this face now close to your face, closer and closer. And then it'll go behind the skin of the face that you're going to present to the world 
And as it does that, a question I'd want to ask of you is, would you be willing to allow people to see not just the first face that they'll see when they look at your skin, but to see radiating through it the second face of the guide that you picked? And if it's your sense that you were given wise words, maybe even to allow your behavior and your demeanor, how you carry yourself through the day, even with this issue that you picked that is challenging for you, to allow that second face to be manifest in the words, probably the wise words that you are given as to what to do. And because we don't want to leave it out there, now we're going to reach down to your lap or to your feet, and we're going to bring metaphorically this whole complex issue you picked, and we'll bring it back to where it started, inside you and your history, in your context, in your life's moments, still with a question of what am I going to do about this? But now with some words and some wisdom within that maybe can be of help to you. And then picture where you are and the things that are in it. See if just for fun you can remember what some of the objects are and the things you'll see when you open your eyes and then come back and open your eyes. Well, thank you so much. And thank you for joining me today and, and for everyone listening. If you'd like to learn more about Stephen's work, you can visit his website at www.stephencehayes.com. S-T-E-V-E-N-C-H-A-Y-E-S dot com. And his new book, A Liberated Mind, How to Pivot Toward What Matters, is available in hardcover, ebook, and audiobook formats. And as always, thanks for listening to the Meta Hour podcast from the Be Here Now Network. Thank you for listening. For more information about Sharon's many offerings and her ongoing teaching schedule, please visit her website at SharonSalzberg.com.